Good morning. My name is Linda, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's just fantastic to be here 50 years. You guys like to talk. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Um, conventions, uh, I think, are, are just a perfect example of uh, the three legacies in action. You know, they're obviously based on recovery. It takes a whole lot of service to pull one together. And, um, and, and it just facilitates the, the fellowship and the unity um, that ensures our survival. And I am so grateful for that. I want to thank Steve and, uh, and the committee and, and everyone that made it possible uh, that, that welcomed me to be here today. I'm, uh, I'm here under unusual circumstances. You were expecting Liz B. And Steve called me a couple of months ago. Um, Liz, uh, I, I understand, suffered a stroke and as a result is unable to be here today. I have never met Liz, but she, she helped me a great deal. I was a few months sober. And um, couldn't get the third step. You know, I thought the third step was about understanding God. Yeah. And uh, I was paralyzed. I was just paralyzed. I couldn't hear my sponsor. I couldn't hear the people in my meeting rooms who were telling me things like, if three frogs were sitting on a log and one jumped off, how many are left? I don't get it. <laughs> and... Uh, at a few months later, my sponsor handed me a tape of Liz B's, Liz B. And I went home and I played the tape. And Liz talked about making a decision to take a trip and how it was simply a decision and that she didn't go anywhere until she did a few other things, like save her money, buy a passport, get the tickets, and, and um, you know, take all these steps. And, and that the decision was an important one, but she wasn't going anywhere until she'd done the rest of the footwork. And it clicked, you know, and, and it, uh, it was a pivotal point for me in my recovery. And I, um, if we could, um, just take a moment and let's, um, let's wrap our minds and our hearts around Liz and just send her a, uh, just a, a prayer and, and, and a note of love. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> The first great promise of this book, of this program, is that we can show others like us precisely how to recover. And that's just fantastic. I um, We heard that message last night. Ah, didn't Scott just lift us up? Wasn't that a fantastic message? And what a fantastic power. I um, had no idea. <clears throat> I understand today that my illness, my seemingly hopeless state of mind and body existed before I ever picked up a drink. The book tells me that selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of my problem, and it's been present, I understand today, for as long as I've been alive. My earliest memory of trying to be God, and, and that's, that's, that's my problem, folks, I, uh, I, I play God. I think I know how life ought to be, how you ought to be, how I ought to be, how it ought to be. And um spent most of my life trying to make that happen. And my earliest memory is as a young child. I'm the oldest of five. And my brother Bobby is 13 months younger than I. 
we were sitting on the basement steps, and I was trying desperately to teach him to tie his shoes. Okay? Now, I wasn't trying to teach him to tie his shoes because he was tripping over his laces and he needed to tie his shoes. I was trying to teach him to tie his shoes because I was certain that if I had to teach him to tie his shoes, my father would stop hitting him in the head and calling him dumbass. Uh, it was all about doing things so that I could achieve a certain outcome so that, guess what, I could feel better. You know, my whole life has been motivated by me trying to feel better. My whole life has been about avoiding pain and doing whatever was necessary so that I could feel better. And I never could get it. You know, I never could get it. Uh, another really significant event for me uh, occurred when I was about eight years old. I became very ill. My my father drank a lot, and he was a binge drinker. And when he drank, you know, he didn't work. And when he wasn't drinking, he did work. And and the life was just very chaotic and unpredictable. But um, when I was around eight, I became very ill with rheumatic fever. It wasn't diagnosed yet. Uh, my parents just knew I was very sick. And we lived next door to a lady who at this time seemed like she was 100 years old. But she fed the squirrels, and I remember, remember that about her. And... Um, I was very ill, and this particular day, she gave me a picture. It was a picture of, it's the popular biblical picture of Jesus and the lambs or children. And what, what I remember, she gave me this picture, and she told me that I was going to be okay. You know, and for just a moment, I believed her. And for just a moment, I felt that I was safe enough. I felt that I was good enough. And I felt that I was loved enough. What I didn't understand is that I would spend the rest of my life trying to get that experience again. You know, it didn't last. Um, I never felt safe enough. I never felt good enough. And I never felt loved enough. I did a lot of things to try to achieve that. And one of the things I did was um, I became a very, very good little girl. I was truly uh, a little Miss Goody Two-Shoes. And the reason wasn't because I was just, you know, good by nature. I just knew that if I behaved, I got lots of girls from the adults. And I was the ideal child. Um, they could take me anywhere, and I behaved properly, and, and I just starving, you know, just starving for that approval, that love. And, and, um, and it was a way to get what I thought I needed. And that worked for a while. Um, when I was 15, 16, um, by this time, my parents had divorced. I, um, there's one other significant event, event that's coming to mind, so I need to share it. When I was 11, my, um, my parents separated prior to divorcing, and I remember so clearly the, the mixed emotion I had because there were so many times when I would stand in the hallway with my three younger brothers while my parents behind their bedroom door fought. And it was scary. And I can remember standing in the hallway so many times telling my brothers, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. When I didn't, I didn't know that it was. I didn't believe that it was. And so the day that my dad came and, and told me that, and with tears, that he was, uh, that he was leaving, that he loved me, but that he had to leave, I had such mixed emotion. I, um, I was grateful because I thought, well, maybe now, you know, they won't fight anymore. And at the same time, I loved my dad, and I hated to see him go. He left, and I became convinced that if I had a younger sister, 
you know, there's always something that's going to make me feel better. And I was convinced that if I had a younger sister, my life would be complete. And so it didn't pray much, but every time I prayed, I got what I wanted. And uh, I prayed for a baby sister. My parents had a brief reconciliation, and <laughs> I had a baby sister. <laughs> uh, prayer works. <laughs> I like this kind of God. Um, Cindy became my, my sister child. She truly did. She slept in my room. Uh, I got up in the middle of the night with her. I took care of her. Um, she, everywhere I went, she went. She was my sister child. And uh, my mother worked lots of long hours, and so she really knew me more than my mother. The, um, when I was 15, I um, took my first drink. I wasn't going to drink, wasn't going to smoke. I wasn't going to do any of those things. I didn't want to be like my dad. And um can't really tell you much about that first drink. Don't remember. <laughs> I drank and uh and I blacked out and and I just don't remember much about it other than it worked and I went back for more. You know, and, and what I understand today is that um when I started drinking, I found something that for a while made me feel good enough. It made me feel safe enough, and it made me feel loved enough. But it didn't last. And um, that summer, I not only discovered alcohol, I discovered drugs, and I discovered boys, which is a polite way of saying sex. <laughs> and everything changed. Yeah, everything changed. Um, I understand when the big book talks about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because that's exactly what I did. The the straight A honor roll student, little Miss Scooty Two Shoes, found something that worked better, and I just roared. You know, I um, no longer got straight A's. I started skipping school. Eventually, dropped out. I no longer cared what adults thought of me. I found what had worked. I found my life, and I was out to you know I was going to pursue it. It was it was my way or no way. I um. I just hurt so many people. I roared through so many lives, and that little sister was one of them. She, um, well, I have a great love affair with my sister today, and that's because of you and this program and, and the steps that you brought me. The, um, what happened at that point is that, um, I did what we do, and, uh, My heart was damaged by the rheumatic fever, and so around this time, shortly after I started drinking, I um, developed congestive heart failure and had open heart surgery in order to, they were going to replace the valve, but decided that since I was so young, they would just patch it up. And so they patched it up and told me that in about five years, they would need to replace the valve. So I went home. Um, you know, we do always feel different then. Well, I went home, 16, 17 years old, with this huge Frankenstein scar. It was really different then. And I used that. Um, anything that life gives me that I don't like, that I don't um, think I deserve, um, I don't know how to feel it, so I, I drink at it, and I numb, and I run. And, um, and I'm insane, and I understand that. Two months after recovering from open-heart surgery, I'm out there doing everything I was doing before, 
but believed that if I stayed away from the amphetamines, I was taking good care of myself. <laughs> um, the real problem really does center in our minds. <laughs> the, um, so the madness continued, and what happened is that about a year later, my mother lost her job. Uh, we lost the house. We all went to live with my dad. And yet for years I said I hated that. I hated, you know, going to live with my dad, and that's just not the truth. What I hated was leaving my mother. And the longer I'm sober, the more I get to better understand the reality of my own life. Um, we went to live with my dad, and um, I continued doing what I did. And I contracted hepatitis, I was hospitalized, and I met the man of my dreams. He was 10 years older than me. He was exotic. He was Hispanic. He was affiliated with a motorcycle gang. And he noticed me. (laughs) And that's really all it takes, you know. (laughs) Yeah. The nurses noticed that he noticed me. And uh, the doctors, the doctor and the nurses uh, told my parents that this man was a scoundrel and to keep their young daughter away from him. Well, my parents told me, you know, the doctor and the nurses say that this man's a scoundrel, you've got to stay away from him. You know, it's just, it's in my mind, tell me not to and I've got to. You know, I've just got to. And what happened was that um, when I went home from the hospital, I packed my bags, I told my father I was going to spend the night with a girlfriend, I left, I moved in with this man, and I never went back. You know, and that's what I do with people who love me the most. You know, I just totally disregard them. Um, that little sister that loves me and depends on me, you know, when I started doing my deal, I can remember before moving, you know, her standing on the other side of my bedroom door, knocking and crying and, you know, wanting to come in. And I can't let her in. I won't let her in because of what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with. I can't undo that, you know. I can't undo that and make that not be. So I, um, I just continue to roar. And Barry and I begin our path of mutual insanity. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's not about the trauma and the drama. I mean, that's just background. Uh, I understand that today. We, there was a lot of trauma and drama. Everything from guns pointed at the head to, um, um, it was just ugly and it was all there. The, um, the ugliest thing we did though was that, um, they sold drugs and in an attempt to, um, to get more for my money, I was willing to sell these uh, drugs to my brothers, and we did. And my brother Bobby is the one who's 13 months younger than I am, and, and we've always gotten along pretty well. Our next brother, John, uh, John and I were just so much alike, and we had this hate-love relationship our entire lives. Um, he was so angry, and the way we would battle is that I would lash out with my tongue, and he would fight back with his fist. And there were times that I would literally, on my knees, pray to God that John would die. And I meant it. You know, just that kind of hatred, that kind of hurt, that kind of pain. 
And you know other times that I loved him so much I thought my heart would burst. But this particular day, um, my brother Bobby had overdosed from, from these drugs. And, um, see, I had hoped he would share them with me, and, and he didn't. Um, and he suffered some pretty severe consequences as a result. Well, this particular day, Barry and I visit my father's house, and we invite everyone to go to the drive-in with us, but I don't invite John because it's one of those days I'm hating John. And um, Barry invited him. He declined. So we go to the drive-in, and um, my brother Bobby and my brother John are, and, and a girlfriend of my brother Bobby's are driving uh, to Lebanon, Indiana, and they have an, they have an automobile accident. And John dies, his skull is crushed, Vicky dies, and my brother Bobby remains conscious with nothing more than a broken nose for three hours while the um, emergency personnel try to cut them out of the truck. And it's reported that during those three hours, all my brother Bobby could say was, please get my brother. When I learn about this, I am overwhelmed with feelings of guilt and sorrow and terror and responsibility and remorse, and I don't know how to feel those feelings. And so I do what I've learned to do, and that is I run and I numb, I drink and I drug. And I'm not there for anyone. We're there my brother. And I'm not there for my family. My brother Bobby goes into um, an institution. I'm not there for him. Selfishness and self-centeredness is definitely the root of my problem. So I bury that stuff really deep. And um, my father must have intuitively known what I might do, and I still don't know how. He asked me to please not make any decision to marry this man I was living with for at least three months. I hadn't, uh, hadn't talked about marrying Barry or anything else, but three months later I married, I married my madman. And... Um, and I don't know if that was just some way to punish myself or what, but um, my um, a later husband, <laughs> who's one of who's one of us, said that uh, even a dog will leave if you beat it long enough. And eventually, this dog left. Yeah, I um came to a point where I realized that I had problems, my life wasn't going the way I wanted it to, and I was convinced that my problem was drugs and the men I was choosing. So, I laid down the drugs and I started looking for a different kind of man. And around this time, by now I'm 21, coincidentally, and um, I get a job with a large organization, uh, and they still employ me today. That's a miracle. The... Um, and I start looking, and I find him. I find him in the workplace, and um, his name's Charlie, and he noticed me. Huh? The, uh, oh, 
I, uh, that's something I've had a chance to look at in inventory. You know, I, uh, I've seen in inventory how I am so attracted to being attractive too. <laughs> the neediness just oozes. I, um, anyway, I find Charlie and he doesn't drink like I drink. And he's financially secure and he's emotionally secure and he doesn't, uh, abuse anything or anyone and he worships me it's uh it's what i thought i needed and um <laughs> and our first date uh, just uh says it all actually on our first date i drank imagine that i um threw up all over his car <laughs> and i later had a vague recollection that i had done that and that I needed to go clean it up, only to discover that he had already cleaned it up. And that became the story of our lives. Uh, I made the messes, and he was right behind me cleaning them up, and I grew to hate him for it and despise him for it. Of course, it wasn't him, it was me. But we, um, we eventually married. We eventually, you know, it was just about getting those things that would make me okay. The house, the cars, the vacations, and, you know, and, and we had all the stuff. We really did, and on the outside it looked so good. You know, uh, people saw us as just truly, you know, the ideal couple. What they didn't see was that uh, every, at this point I'm not drinking daily, but I'm drinking every weekend, and I drink exactly the way the book describes an alcoholic of our type, you know, when I pick up that first drink, something happens to me that never happened to Charlie. And that is that the phenomenon of craving sets in. And when I have that first drink, I have to have the next drink. I didn't understand how powerless I was over that. You know, I understand it today and I eventually grew to understand it. But um, I would always, when I began drinking, I would drink until I passed out, blacked out, or ran out. And if I ran out, I would do anything and everything possible to get more. The um, phenomenon of craving would not have been a big deal if it weren't for the way I thought, because there were many times, as we all know, you know, when we when we're drinking and we do those, we drink to excess, you know, and we didn't mean to, we really didn't, you know, I wasn't going to do it this time, and. Um, you know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter that I spent a night in county jail. It didn't matter that I lost control of my bowels. It didn't matter that I humiliated the man I pres- presumably loved. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what happened. I mean, the three-minute event, it didn't matter. My mind still told me that this time it will be different. This time it will be different. You know, so I take the first drink, and that is the most insane thing I do, and I do it sober. I take the first drink sober, and the phenomenon of craving sets in, and I'm doomed. My um, drinking was hard work for me. <laughs> I uh, when I first came into these rooms, I used to really envy people who said they slept under bridges. Because I thought, oh, you didn't have to play any roles. You didn't have to put on the face. You just got to be who you were. <laughs> and uh, 
it was such hard work to get up in the morning and put on the go-to-work face, you know, and go to work and do that deal and be miserable, and then come home and put on the be-at-home face and then watch the clock because, you know, real alcoholics drink in the daytime, and I'm not an alcoholic, so I'll watch the clock until 5 p.m., you know, and then I'll drink. Um... You know, and then go do the family things and put on the family face and go do the social things and put on the social face and just constantly putting on the faces and trying to be whatever it is you need me to be. You know, I spent my entire life trying to create myself for others and it was a long time sobered before I understood that the key to happiness is about revealing myself to others. And you taught me to do that. I, um... Drinking progressed for me from just, we, my weekends started happening on Thursdays. Yeah. They began on Thursdays, and of course holidays and vacations don't count. Um, and then it got to a point where I was drinking on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, but because I was only drinking a couple on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights, I didn't have a problem because I could just drink a couple. What I didn't understand is that I had to have a couple. Now, uh, along this, uh, around the same time, my brother Bobby is the real alcoholic. He's the one who's getting all the DUIs. See, I was, I went to jail once and decided drinking and driving did not mix. Jail does not suit me. I quit driving. <laughs> the, um, Bobby continued to get behind the wheel of a car. Um, the, uh, and this is how I saw things. Uh, but he was the real alcoholic. He was the one getting the DUIs. He was the one beating up his wife. He was the one losing jobs. Um, he had a problem. And being the good sister that I am, and because my life's so orderly now, I'm going to help him. And what happened was, um, Bobby was facing some jail t- uh, prison time, and he signed up for a 30-day treatment program at a Salvation Army facility in Indianapolis called the Harbor Light Center. And and I, I helped him. I helped him get in, and I went to his first meeting there with him. I did not understand at the time that it was a closed meeting. I wouldn't have known what a closed meeting was, but I am so grateful that I was there. It was a huge room. It seemed like there were hundreds of people. There were probably 30. And you all went around and shared one at a time things about yourself that I had never, ever heard other people share. And I don't remember what was said, but I remember the experience. And the experience was I sat there and I was overwhelmed. I knew that a miracle was happening here. And I knew it was just what Bobby needed. (laughs) And I went to some other meetings with him, some speaker meetings. I heard some other things. Now, I need to mention that, you know, I go to these meetings, I go home, I immediately get a drink. (laughs) Uh, Bobby ended up going to prison and I, being the good sister I am went and visited every Sunday um, and I had to drink to do that that's hard Uh, I'm sure there's somebody in this room who's done that from either side the the one thing that um, Charlie and I didn't have yet was a child and from the time I was a small girl and had my first baby doll I knew I was destined to be a mother and um we were working on that. I had some fertility problems. Um, imagine that, the way I took care of myself. <laughs> and we were going through the, all the fertility treatment. And anyway, eventually, I became pregnant. 
And it was a joy beyond joys. And there are women in this room that I know understand that. And I had read all the books and um, had seen what what a um, three-month-old fetus looks like and went for an ultrasound and saw this picture-perfect, I mean textbook, picture-perfect image of this little three-month fetus, you know, heart beating. It was the closest I had ever come to just really being aware of the presence of God. And while I was lying on that table, within seconds, the doctor told me that this was an ectopic pregnancy that was in my fallopian tube rather than my uterus, and that we had to immediately go have surgery because otherwise I would hemorrhage and die. And the heart's beating. So we go off and we have the surgery. It was a turning point for me because I had always believed um, that I'd done some bad things. And I'd always believed that God, you know, was settling up. Uh, but at this point, I believed he'd gone too far. And it was all about God getting me. And um came out of the hospital, and I sank into a pit of despair and self-pity and remorse and resentment um, that, thank God, almost killed me. And I didn't care about playing the roles anymore. I didn't care about putting on the happy face anymore. I just didn't care about anything. And I'd get up and I'd go to work and I'd come home and I'd drink. And I became very, very miserable. But I still didn't have a problem. You know, my problem was everything else out there. You know, Charlie and the way he behaved and, and the doctors and God and them and him and it. And, um, and I got to a point where I felt like I was living in a glass bubble. You know, I could see all of you out there in the real world. I couldn't touch you, and I wasn't part of it. And I knew, I knew I was insane. I understood I was insane before I ever understood I was powerless over alcohol, because I knew what I thought. You know, and I would sit around and think things that I knew normal people didn't think. And I knew that if you caught me thinking these things, you'd lock me up and throw away the key. Um, and some of my daydreams were just bizarre. I used to, um, I used to think I, we lived in this beautiful eight-room Victorian home. And I used to daydream about how I could burn it down and make it look like an accident and just not have to deal with it anymore. I used to dream about how Charlie might, if he couldn't find someone and run off with her, Maybe he could just have a quick, painless death. You know, I didn't want him to suffer, but I just wanted to be gone. You know, I, um, I couldn't stand my life, and I didn't know how to change it, and I certainly didn't know how to take responsibility for making any decisions. And so I drank, and I grew more and more miserable, and it got to the point where I would wake up in the middle of the night with spiders all over me and spider bites. And I'd go in the bathroom and I'd get the rubbing alcohol and just to try to get the welts down and the spiders to stop biting me. And, and I'd talk about this the morning, the next morning. They never bothered Charlie. <laughs> he never had a spider bite, never saw a spider, never felt a spider. I'd go to the office and my hands would be trembling and I'd tell my coworkers, I must need to eat breakfast. Look how my hands are shaking. I didn't have a clue. I, um, I crossed, um, there's one final line I, I crossed before I, um, before I completed my spiritual bankruptcy. And, um, 
I became unfaithful in my marriage with a friend of the family and um, not proud of that, but it's what happened. And, you know, the beauty of, of this life is that God will use anything and everything. He loves us so much. He'll work through anything and everything, and he knows how to get my attention. And this man eventually tried to get sober, and well, he did get sober eventually, but he was trying to get sober in, in, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at the time. Of course, when he saw me, we eventually drank, and um, he had left the big book and the 12 and 12 in my living room uh, by accident, and the morning after my last drunk, my last drunk was nothing extraordinary. Um, I had passed that. By this time, you know, I had, I had gone from drinking fine champagne at the symphony, real alcoholics don't do that, by the way, to uh, old Milwaukee in my living room. <laughs> Uh, Charlie got really tired of fitting that bill. And um, the morning after my last drink, I knew I was dying. And I knew at any moment my insides were going to burst through my outsides. And that was going to be it. And I asked the God that I hadn't talked to for a long, long time to just please help me. And when I could get up out of that chair, I found your big book in my living room. And I opened it and I found chapter 3. I had no idea what chapter 3 was. I hadn't read any books with my brother. But um, chapter 3 saved my life. Because I read chapter 3 and I understood the nature of my insanity. And it's called alcoholism. And I understood that there was a solution. And I felt hope. But I'm an intelligent alcoholic, so I didn't come running to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, what I did, by the way, about six months prior to this, I had started smoking dope again. If some way I could manage, you know, if I could just manage. Um, I just, I, I just wanted to be okay. I just wanted to stop hurting. I just wanted to be okay. And I crossed that line. You know, I, I got to that point, and I know you'll understand this. Well, I would look out my window every evening and I would see the normal people, the ones who were walking their dogs and pushing strollers, and they seemed so okay. They seemed so safe. They seemed so happy. And I would tell myself every evening, tomorrow I won't drink. And tomorrow I can be like that. And tomorrow came and I had to drink. Now, I don't know when or where or how that happened, but it happened, and I was powerless. <laughs> so I said that prayer, and I've, ne- I've li- listened to a lot of people over the years, and I've never heard anyone who sincerely said that prayer and didn't get an answer. And my answer was the big book in Chapter 3. And um, what I did was I got my telephone directory, looked up Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, found our central office downtown, and I trotted off the the next day, lunchtime, and I went in I, because I knew that the man who left these books would be back to pick them up, so I needed to get my own copy. Bought a big book, bought a 12 and 12, bought some pamphlets, um, explained that these were for a friend, and uh, <laughs> paid for them. And then I, as I was leaving, the man said the strangest thing. He said, keep coming back. <laughs> Uh, why would I come back? I have the books. 
So I went home and began what I refer to as my home study program. <laughs> and it looked like this. I'd come home every night, I'd roll a joint, and I studied. <laughs> and uh, did all the steps in my head, and I was miserable. I was miserable. Charlie and I were approaching uh, our wedding anniversary, and we went off that weekend to celebrate, and in my mind, I was at the amends step. <laughs> and in my mind, what that meant was I would take advantage of this opportunity to confess to him <laughs> all the horrible things I'd done. Uh, and... But by confessing, he would see what a, a rotten person I was, and he would make the decision to leave me. Um, again, I can't take responsibility. I can't make decisions. That did not happen by the grace of God. You know, I understand today that that is not an amends, and I understand today that I, I truly believe God kept me silent. Um, what was important, though, was that that weekend something I'd heard 18 months earlier when I was in those meetings with my brother. A woman had stood at the podium and talked about how getting high with her kids wasn't sobriety. And that just kept echoing through my mind. And see, I wasn't feeling any better. I still hurt. I wasn't drinking, but I was miserable. I was miserable. And um, so that was echoing through my mind, and I understood. I needed, I needed, to, put, you know, I needed to put it down. And... Um, I smoked everything I had, and then I put it down. <laughs> That's the truth. And um, and what happened that next week, um, I knew there was something that wasn't in the book. I knew that this worked because I'd heard the miracle. You know, I'd seen the miracle. I'd experienced the miracle. But it wasn't working for me, and I didn't get it. I read the book. I'm intelligent. I can understand it. It wasn't working. So I believe that if I came to your meetings and listened very carefully, you'd let it slip. You'd tell me the secret. You'd tell me how it worked. And um, at this time, my brother's out of prison, and he's got a court card that he's got to get signed, and he has no driver's license. And once a week, he and his family are coming to our house, and they visit while he walks down the street to a meeting. And so it was perfect. It's like, okay. I can go with him to support him. You know, just because I'm in a hen house doesn't mean I'm a hen. Uh, nobody, I hadn't admitted to anybody I was an alcoholic yet. And um made that decision. I went with Bobby down the street to spy. <laughs> just to try to figure out what it was you guys were doing that I couldn't get. And um went to that meeting and we got there early and I'm just a front row. You know, I mean, I just go to the front row all the time. And we sat in the front row and... um a remarkable thing happened. When they asked if anyone was there for the very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I stood up and I said, my name's Linda and I'm an alcoholic. And they gave me a token and there was some clapping. And and um, what's so wonderful about that is that um, for the first time in a long time, I was honest about what I am and who I am. And and I felt a change. I mean, there was an immediate effect. And I don't remember anything about that meeting. It was a speaker meeting. I know I laughed. I cried. I, I related. Um, I began to feel a part of. And I um, I went home. 
And um, for the next couple of weeks, I drove 45 minutes out of town so nobody would see me at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Now, they'd seen me. <laughs> oh, they'd seen me. <laughs> they'd seen me drinking and doing all sorts of things that heaven forbid that anybody see me at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and, and it's so wonderful that we have that um, that anonymity, you know, so that newcomers like me who are just crazy can at least believe that, you know, you're going to protect me. You're, you're not going to tell the world that I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> the, um, eventually, I stopped. You know, that didn't work. Eventually, I found uh, a local club and started going to meetings there. And um, And for two months... For the first two months of my sobriety, all I remember is I would go to meetings, and for that one hour, I was okay. For that one hour, I was okay. And then I'd leave, and I don't know how I went to work, and I don't know how I went home, and I don't know how I did what I did, but I did it, and I was crazy, and I didn't sleep, and, and I was feeling everything, and I, but I'd go to that meeting, and I'd be okay. And um, a beautiful man by the name of Armand was in those meeting rooms. And Armand was in his late 60s and reminded me of skinny Santa Claus. He had these sparkly blue eyes and 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 uh, white hair. And um, and he um, he gave me one of my first gifts. He, he said, you know, why don't you get on your knees every morning and ask for help? And why don't you get on your knees every night and thank him? And I could do that. I could go in my bathroom, shut the door, lock the door, make sure nobody was nearby. <laughs> and uh, and I could get on my knees and I could do that. Uh, and it, I think it's wonderful that I was able to, you know, pray where I used to puke. And um, <laughs> later on, he suggested that I get a sponsor. You know, that was not quite so easy. That meant talking to another human being and asking for help. Um, but eventually, New Year's Eve is when it happened. We we have alcathons, and I was at this all-night alcathon, just stark, just nuts. And again, it was the result of a prayer. I'd looked at women, you know, and, well, okay, but maybe, no, can't ask her because of this. Well, can't ask her because of that. I was scared. And um, this night, it was about it was about 2 or 3 in the morning, and I knew I was in trouble. You know? And once again, I asked this God, who brought me two months so far to just please help me ask the next woman who walks in the door to be my sponsor. And the next woman that walked in the door was a lady named Janet. And I'd only seen Janet once before. And she had this really outrageous laugh. Um, I just didn't know too much about her, but I asked her. And she gave me her number. She said, call me and we'll talk about it. And it took me five days to pick up that 2,000-pound telephone. <laughs> you know, because what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? And I had to pray to make the call, you know, but I, I needed help and I knew I needed help and I wasn't, wasn't getting it, wasn't getting it on my own. So I picked up that phone and I called her and I said hello and that was all I needed to say. And the miracle, I mean, the shortcut began. Um, sponsorship, in, in my experience, is, um, is the shortcut. Janet took me to the book. Janet told me all the answers are in the book. And um, Janet taught me about trusting, you know, another woman. Janet showed me a day at a time that I could trust her. She told me a day at a time that she loved me. And for some reason, eventually, I believed her. The, um, 
I didn't complete my first inventory until I was, well, had to get past that third step thing. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> um, but when I got past the third step and understood it was a decision, you know, it was just about deciding who was going to be God. I wasn't a very good God. In fact, Janet told me I needed a name tag that said, Hello, my name is Linda. I'm not God. Uh, I didn't get it. <laughs> but uh, I do today. <laughs> I, um, I got my first, my first inventory wasn't done until I was six months sober. But it was right on time. And it wasn't the way I work inventory today. I, um, I understood that it was, uh, there were three parts to it. It was about resentments, it was about fears, and it was about conduct. And I had pages and pages of resentments, you know, and, and I did all those columns and I understood, I was able to answer the questions about, yeah, I'm dishonest, yeah, I'm selfish, yeah, I'm self-centered, uh, and yes, I'm afraid. And I was able to do conduct. Oh, we had lots of sexual conduct, you know, uh, all the elephants in the living room. The, um, but the fear, I just couldn't get the fear. I just couldn't get the fear, and I had half a page from dying, yeah. and, um, and that was it. I didn't have any solution to the fear, but I took what I did, and uh, and I sat with Janet, and I shared it, and I cried, and she shared, and and, um, and and we prayed. We prayed before, we prayed after. We did the third step prayer on our knees too, and um, And I got the elephants out of the living room, you know. I, I, I did. I shared the things that, that I could share at that time, and we went on with it. And my experience has been that the steps, they just, you know, they are that design for living, you know. And, and we continue to use them, and my understanding of the steps and their impact on my life and the lives of those around me just grows every day, every day. The... Um, my understanding of the sixth and seventh step at that time was all messed up too. I thought the sixth and seventh step was about me fixing me. You know, if I'm dishonest, well, I need to practice being honest. Um, if I'm impatient, I need to practice being patient. If I had the power to change me, I wouldn't need you. I wouldn't need God. I wouldn't need this program. I don't have the power to change me. Um, but if I'm willing, I'll be changed. You know, and I understand today that willingness is the key. And I understand today that it, when I've completed inventory and I've shared it with another human being, admitted it to myself and, and with my God, that generally I am very willing. I'm very willing to, to be changed. And uh, I think it's interesting that this program is not about getting more, it's about getting rid of. And every time I every time I use inventory and the rest of the steps, I'm able to discard something else because God in His mercy re- removes it. And um, I also understand that once I'm willing to be changed, I express it. You know, and that's the seven step prayer, you know, where I do offer all of me to my Creator, you know, so that He can decide. We have a, a priest at home who's in the program. I love, I'm going to share his seven-step um, explanation. I love it. He talks about the way we offer ourselves to God is very similar to the way we would offer chocolates to a friend. And if I've got a box of Whitman's and I really, truly want to share with you, offer them to you, how do I do that? Do I hold it back here and say, you want chocolate? Yeah. Or do I extend the box and say, take what you want? Yeah. And I, I like that. Um, and today, when 
when I uh, when I use the seven step prayer, it's in that it's in that vein. You know, I am yours, God. Take what you want. Use me. The um the action I'm required to follow up with is to make that list. You know, the people I've harmed, and to begin the uh, the action of making amends. And um, I had that messed up too. <laughs> I uh, when I first began making amends. I mean, I understood it was about identifying how I had harmed others, and I understood it was not about saying I'm sorry, and I understood it was about telling them I'm wrong, and I understood that it was about admitting, here's how I believe I've harmed you, but then I also understood or thought that it was about telling them how I was going to amend them. You know, I've harmed you, and here's how I'm going to fix it. Uh, fortunately, some um, people much more experienced and wiser than, than, than me helped me understand that that process, that that's arrogant, and that that process involves doing all of those things. And obviously, if I've if I've stolen money, I need to be prepared to start writing checks. Um, but I also I need to be I need to be willing to ask, what can I do to make this right? Yeah. You tell me. You know, I've I've destroyed your fence. What can I do to make it right? Yeah. And that takes. Faith, you know, faith and works. The um, I thought writing inventory was the most terrifying thing in the world, um, and it's not. You know, going to face some people can be pretty terrifying, and I've got to grab God's hands. You know, I've just got to, I've, I've got to, I've got to grab that faith, and I've got to believe it, and I've got to walk it. The um, the first amend that I uh, approached was to my brother John, who died in that automobile accident. And um, my sponsor suggested that I write a letter and be willing to take it to the grave, his gravesite. And um, I sat on my back porch and I started writing to John. And at this time I was uh, living two, uh, two buildings down was a church and there was this huge brick wall next to our house. But I'm writing, and the more I'm writing just to him, about him, I, I can't even tell you what I was writing, you know, the tears I start feeling. Fifteen years after my brother dies, I begin to grieve his death. And at some point, I can't see what I'm writing because of the tears. And at another point, I look up, and what I see is the steeple of the church. And I have an experience that I'm still not able to articulate. But what I understood at that moment was that it was okay. John was such an angry young man. I was such an angry young woman. And I understood that we were forgiven. He and I. I was aware of the love and grace of God. And it was okay. I've been at peace with that ever since. The, um, not drinking is a miracle. There's no question about that. 
But if we stop at just not drinking, we cheat ourselves out of so much more. Um, I didn't need to go to his gravesite. It was complete, right then, right there. And um, the next person I approached was the man I was married to at the time. I, uh, my sponsor suggested, oh, by the way, when I got sober, I heard what so many of us here around the tables, you know, don't get into any relationships. Why is them two? <laughs> I needed to get out of one. I, <laughs> I, um, told my sponsor what I was up to. And she said, well, do you feel guilty? I said, no. She said, well, don't worry about it. But the minute you feel guilty, you're going to have to change something or you'll drink. About a week later, I started feeling guilty. <laughs> and um, and something had to change. And so I um, said goodbye to this man and stayed put in my marriage. And, and she said, don't make any major decisions for the first year. And that's not in the book, but that's what she told me. And that's what I did, and it worked. And after being sober a year and having the opportunity you know, to to, uh, to understand the steps and to, to begin to use the steps in my life, I eventually approached Charlie and made amends the way it's suggested in the book, admitted my wrongs, and we um, we eventually agreed to divorce. It was the best decision that I could make at the time. And while it may not have been the best decision, and, you know, hindsight's 2020. I'm sure that if I made another decision, that would have worked out too. I'm certain of that today. See, what I understand is that today I get a chance to live in God's world, and in God's world, He takes care of things. I, um, ran into Charlie a couple of years ago. We see each other now and then, and, um, and this is after having been sober for a while and realizing that, um, that I could have made a different decision. You know, and that my decision at that time, while I was actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and using the steps, my decision at that time was still influenced by my self-seeking ways. You know, I wanted out of the marriage. I was certain that there were greener pastures somewhere. Uh, I'm not proud of that, but that's the creature I am. I, um, being sober while realizing I could have made a different decision, you know, the wondering what ifs, you know, ran into Charlie and um, at the workplace, and we had a chance to talk again. And here's the grace of God. He thanked me. He thanked me because he's remarried today to a beautiful woman named Karen, whom he met in Al-Anon. You know? um, he adopted her son, and they have another child together. And he thanked me, and he told me with just true sincerity and enthusiasm that he believed it was all divinely inspired. That if he hadn't met me and we hadn't had our journey, he never would have met Karen. Yeah. Um, I didn't do that. My amends didn't do that. God did that because God loves Charlie and Karen and Matthew and any baby. um, What I did um, was continue to make amends to the best of my ability and um, a real important one was to my sister, that little baby girl that I had abandoned. I um, It's February, and I have a letter she wrote me in February of 1980. Uh, I'd like to share it. She was um, not very old, 
probably 10 or 11, and um, it says, Dear Linda, how are you? I am fine. Are you going to marry Charlie? I want to meet him. Why don't you come over sometime? Last Friday, I was in a play. It was Cinderella, and I was Cinderella. And you owe me three letters now. I didn't copy the picture. It looked, I looked at a valentine and drew it as good as I could. How do you like it? And it's Snoopy with little woodstock. Um, read the valentines. P.S. You owe me three letters. I love you. Love, Cindy Kennedy. Um, we lived in the same town. I was 20 minutes away. And incapable and unwilling and so selfish and self-centered to go visit my sister. I can't undo that. But sober, you gave me the tools to go to her. To admit my wrongs. To ask what I can do. She didn't ask much. She just wanted a sister. And what I've also learned is that after I make those direct demands, which are about, it's pretty simple, I just, I go to you face to face whenever possible and directly admit my wrongs. I'm not done. If I really want to practice these principles in all of my affairs, I have to listen to you. And so I continue to listen to my sister. And over the years, if I'm fit and I'm listening, she tells me exactly what she needs. And I get a chance to be there. And she went through a pretty traumatic time in her marriage. And she came to me and she asked for help. And I was able to be there. She has two beautiful baby boys. And she's asked me to be there. And I'm able to be there. And uh, I don't miss plays today. You know. Um, the... Um, While I'm making amends, and after Charlie and I go our separate ways, there's a man in the rooms that I call synonymous named Richard. And, um, <laughs> and he noticed me. Richard and I started holding hands, <clears throat> and my sponsor, we had chaperone dates, which we really did. My sponsor went with us. Uh, she wanted to make sure that, you know, nothing inappropriate happened. Um, it did. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Richard and I uh, started holding hands. Um, he had an unusual technique. We um, we were trying to learn how to be friends before being bed partners. And um, I was visiting one evening, and he suggested that we say the third step prayer together. I was so moved. No man had ever invited me to pray with him before. 
we get on our knees and we say the third step prayer. And he throws me on the stairs as he says it's God's will. <laughs> we are not a grand lad. <laughs> Richard and I eventually, uh, we didn't, we didn't do anything that night. We, we eventually did, and, and we eventually married. And, um, and after much inventory, oh gosh, I didn't want to repeat my patterns. You know, I'd done so much inventory. I knew, thought I knew who and what I was. I desperately didn't want to continue doing what I'd always done because I knew I'd get what I always got. And, um, and I did all kinds of inventory and, and finally just made a decision. You know, and um, he um, he actually made a decision to, to move in together. And Richard expressly um, he wanted to live together for a year and then get married. And I will tell you the truth because it's real important. Uh, his daughter was getting married that August, and the mother of his daughter was someone around him I thought very insecure. Imagine that an emotionally insecure alcoholic. Uh, and I was convinced that I needed to go to his daughter's wedding as his wife, not his shack of my pony. <laughs> and it's always about what I need to feel okay. And so we got married in May. Um, once again, I wasn't listening. I didn't respect uh, what was asked of me. It was, um, it was all done with the steps, and it was still influenced by my selfishness and my self-seeking and what I what I need. And of course, it's good for everyone concerned, can't you see? Yeah. I mean, sober, I do these things. I um, I don't regret it. No. The um, the journey that Richard and I had together was fantastic. We um. We both love Alcoholics Anonymous, and we were both very active for many years with correctional facilities, um, with public information, with just, you know, helping a drunk. And um, that's joyful activity. You know, that, that ensures our sobriety. Um, and, you know, that marriage and Richard taught me so much. If, if you if you really if you're new and you really <laughs> you really want to know what relationships are about they're about grow, they're about growing to know God more because there's nothing like a relationship uh, that gives me that garden of opportunity you know to work these steps because I'm going to have very few days where I'm you know, not going to find some resentment some fear some self-seeking uh, some dishonesty one of my um, most meaningful inventories. Um, is my chicken salad inventory. And um, this happened on a Saturday. Richard was out doing something. Um, I need to tell you that I don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. He did most of the cooking, and um, and he cooked well. Um, but this particular Saturday, I decided that I was going to cook dinner. And it was a big dinner. I mean, it was meat. It was vegetables. It was bread. It was full meal deal. And um, so I went to all this trouble, made this beautiful meal. He comes home. He's not hungry. <laughs> not only is he not hungry, 
but he's not hungry because he stopped and picked up a chicken sandwich. Yeah. Not only did he stop and pick up a chicken sandwich and eat when I had made this beautiful meal, but he didn't get one for me. Where's mine? <laughs> and uh, this is where my mind goes. I became livid. And, um, oh, how could he? What a selfish, thoughtless man he is. And thank goodness that he's taught me what to do because I, it's funny now, but at the time, I mean, I was living in this stuff. And the book says, resentment's the number one offender and it kills more alcoholics than anything else. It doesn't say big, important resentment. It says resentment. You know, I don't care what it's about. If I'm living in it, it'll kill me. Um, so I did what you taught me to do, and I start writing, and I'm angry at him, you know, and he's thoughtless, and he's selfish, and he's self-seeking, and I made this huge meal, and he eats, and he not only does he eat, he doesn't think of me, he doesn't bring me anything, and, and what's it affect, and well, I think I'm someone that should have been consulted before he did. I think I'm someone that he should have thought of, at least bought me, and bought me a chicken sandwich, and on, and on, and on. The, um, eventually I get to that ever-important, um, paragraph, that instruction between the third and the fourth column, where the book tells me, or asks me if I'm willing to look at it from an entirely different angle, and I love this part of the inventory, because this is where, if I'm willing, God will turn my heart and allow me to see something in a way I've never seen it before, and what I understood at that point um, was that he and I, yes, were both spiritually sick, we are just alike, and you know what, he had absolutely no reason to expect me to fix dinner. It's not something I do. He had absolutely no reason to expect that. If I had made that dinner for a girlfriend who told me she was going to drop by and she had already eaten, I wouldn't have had that reaction. It wouldn't have mattered. Richard was being and living an honest life. He was hungry and he ate. If I was cooking because I was hungry, I would have ate and that would have been the end of it. But that wasn't my motive. You know, I saw that my motive was I was making this meal so that I could get him to think a certain way about me and react a certain way. Again, you know, it's about what I need, what I want. And that seems like a, a really insignificant thing. Uh, but it's that awareness that I need. I need to constantly be aware that my troubles are of my own making. Yeah. And God will show me a different way. Um, So much, uh, the miracle of, of this program, so much happened. Um, three years ago, I visit my cardiologist, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to today, what's going on today, and today is about the last three years. I visit my cardiologist, and she tells me that I'm looking at valve replacement pretty soon, in the next couple of years. Okay. But then she goes on to tell me that if I don't quit smoking, I probably won't survive the surgery. And that really makes me mad. <laughs> I um, I go home, and, and on the way home, I'm thinking, you know, she didn't say anything about my good health habits. She didn't say anything about, I eat this, I mean, I eat good, I get a little bit of exercise, I'm not overweight, not a lot, and, you know, just get on the list. She didn't, she didn't mention any of these things, just always wants to get on with that smoking thing. And, uh, oh, I was angry. And I went home and I did what you taught me to do. And I started writing. And, of course, resentment is just, it's just a way for me to, to understand the fear. And when I see the fear and I do the fear inventory, 
I can get the freedom. And what I and I had tried to quit smoking so many times. And this is not a quit smoking campaign. This is not. Cigarettes work for me. You got them, smoke them. <laughs> um, my girl reds. <laughs> 24 years, it worked. Um, but it stopped working. And I really do want to live today. The, um, I tried to quit smoking five, six different times. I tried everything. Hypnosis, just you name it, I tried it. And, um, and but I did inventory. And what I saw was that I wasn't afraid. I was afraid of the pain. I was afraid of the pain of continuing to smoke and suffering those consequences. But more importantly, I was afraid of the pain of quitting. And see, always before I wanted God to take the pain away. And what I saw this time that I'd never seen before was it wasn't about God taking the pain away. You know what? Life is painful. There are things that... Life hurts sometimes. There is pain. Um, what I understood was that it was about God helping me walk through the pain. You know, plugging into that same power that helped me walk through the pain of not drinking, that helped me walk through the pain of feeling. Um, and I plugged into it. And um, sure, that was in April of 98. And in June of 98, I went to a, uh, a weekend uh, retreat workshop. Richard did not go with me. He was invited but didn't. And I didn't realize uh, until I uh, wasn't smoking just how much emotion I was sucking down. This is just my experience. Um, but it was almost like getting sober again. I mean, it really was. And, um, and anyway, I went, I went out to this weekend retreat and I was surrounded by people you know, like this, people who are celebrating the joy of sobriety, people who are celebrating the love of God, you know, and the fact that we've been able to tap into that and realize the miracle of this program. And I went home and I saw my husband who was so miserable. And it became so I became so acutely aware that he was so unhappy and so miserable and seemed to be blaming me. So I did what he taught me to do. I started writing inventory. And in August of 98, and by this time, we were off to visit. He has uh, some older children, and his daughter had three um, granddaughters, uh, and so I have Nana children. Um, anyway, on a trip back from visiting them, I shared with him that, um, that maybe, maybe we needed to separate. It wasn't about divorce, but it was obvious that he was very unhappy, and it's obvious that I'm not his solution. And um, to make a long story shorter, we did eventually, we didn't right away, we couldn't get out of our lease, so he stayed, and I agreed to that. It was about being on God's time. Uh, but then he approached me later and said I was right, he needed to move, and so I moved into the uh, cabin, and... Um, And everything started changing. Um, when the lease was up, I, in the meantime, did some more inventory because once Richard left, that meant a lot changed uh, financially. We didn't know when we were going to be back together, 
and um, and I had a chance to do some financial inventory, and I wanted to file bankruptcy because it would have been convenient. <laughs> um, and bankruptcy is a spiritual answer for many. You know, it's 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 a forgiveness that many of us need to accept. It was not the right answer for me, and a, and a good friend helped me understand that. And so my course of action after doing inventory and understanding that, you know, again, you know, I think that because I'm Linda, it ought to be different. I ought to be able to live this way, yeah. to help with the fact that others can't, but I should be able to. Um, anyway, I was able to, to do the right thing for me, and that is to make arrangements to repay the debt. And Richard and I talked and agreed to his portion, and, and I began that. And around that same time, uh, my family celebrates birthdays, and we were at a restaurant uh, celebrating a birthday and talking, and I was sharing with my family um, that I was going to be moving and, and you know, making uh, these choices. And this family that I had abandoned and whose hearts I had broken, all, one by one, invited me to come live in their home. And um, I was overwhelmed. Um, after some prayer, I uh, went and lived with my sister and her two, her husband and, and two young sons. And that was on November 1st of 1999. I don't know. November 1st of 99, I think. And um, I moved from the east side of town. And I, my first 10 years sober were on the east side. That's where I grew up sober, it's where my AA was, it's where my home group was, it's where everything was. I moved from the east side to the west side, the far west side, into my sister's home on November 1st. In the meantime, the off- my offices where I worked were downtown, and the division I worked for had moved to the west side, um, literally two miles from my father's home. My sister lives a little bit further from him than that. Um, but on I moved on November 1st, and on November... 11th, my father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And um, I absolutely believe that when we enter the world of the Spirit, we're given the opportunity to be right on time all the time. My dad was the last person I made amends to. I was five years sober before I made amends to my father because I was stubborn and I was convinced that he had harmed me more than I had harmed him. And I was unwilling, and I was wrong. And finally, at, at five years sober, I approached my father, and I admitted my wrongs, and we sat on the edge of his bed. And when I asked what I could do, he didn't ask for anything, um, but he started admitting his wrongs. And we put our arms around each other, and we just cried, and we didn't need to fix each other. And I understand today from my inventories that I've spent most of my life in my relationships trying to find and fix my father. And so the next five years we um, we had a different kind of relationship. You know, it was just it was natural and it was normal. And my dad's from Kentucky, by the way, and he grew up loving horses and he loves the track. And we've been a few times, but I mean, it's not like we went to the horse track every weekend or anything. We just yeah, but we just had we had a beautiful relationship, and he was him, and I was me, and it was okay. Um, so on November 11th, he's diagnosed with glioblastoma, terminal uh, brain cancer, and I'm living just a few miles away, and I'm working even closer. 
And because I'm living in a bedroom of my sister's house, I have the opportunity and the flexibility to be there every day. And he, uh, but he has brain surgery and they removed the tumor. And we're told that this is just to prolong his life, that this type of cancer will come back, and that at best he may have 18 months. And the night after his surgery, I was terrified. Not after surgery, after he came home from surgery. He did surgery well, he came home, and, um, and I was just so overcome with fear. And I ended up back at his house at 10.30 that night, and I'd been real strong, you know, and full of faith and everything else. Um, but I ended up back at his house. And he's just come home from having brain surgery. And I'm sitting at his knee, crying and telling him how scared I am. And I'm so afraid he's going to die. And of course he is. We all are. Um, but... um my father, who never lived up to my expectations, was never the dad I thought he was supposed to be. Comforted me and told me that it was going to be okay and that we would just do this one day at a time. And for the next seven months, my dad allowed me to be there for him one day at a time. I had to do inventory. I did inventory that week. And I got in touch with my fear. And I had all the, you know, fear that he's going to die, this, that, and the other. The fear that was really strangling me, the fear that I didn't realize I had, was I was afraid of my father's life. I was afraid of the period of time from then until his death. I don't know what to do with that. I believed that once he died, I would be okay. I had you, I had God, I had the program, but I didn't know how to live until his death. I saw what an absolute coward I am. And I'm so grateful because having seen that fear, I found the freedom. And if I hadn't seen that fear, I would have been incapable of loving my dad for the rest of his life. And um, he taught me so much. He taught me so much those last seven months. I grew to understand that uh, my, my whole life, I had thought that it was about living as though today were the last day of my life. And it's not. No. This new happiness, this new joy comes from living as though it's the last day of your life. My dad let me do that. And the last three days of his life were spent in the hospital. And I was still listening to my family. And someone needed to be there. And they wanted someone there. And so I was there. It was the last three days and nights. And um, I heard my dad gurgle. And for those of you who have watched someone die, it's not pretty. The, um, my father died May 31st, and in Indianapolis, that's the day of uh, the Indy 500. And he got in a he got in a racing pool with the nurses, and he won. In the morning of his death. We were all there, and we had so desperately wanted him to stay, and he did, and he stayed long enough that we were willing to let him go, and that morning we were asking him, what do you need to know to go, Dad? And we started talking, and we told him everything was taken care of, 
and with a moment he took his last breath and he had his last exhalation. And um that was on May thirty first of last year. On um shortly after that my first sponsor had been in the hospital for some time, Janet. Janet drank when I was five years sober. And she came back and she taught me valuable lessons and she remained a dear friend. Um, she died in June. And um, and I got to look at both those deaths. And I saw that Janet was at peace. And I saw that Janet had a loving relationship with the God that she believed in. And I saw that my dad was frightened. My dad was scared. Oh, he was just so frightened to die. And up until we lost consciousness, he remained frightened. And I got to thinking about those things, and I grew angry. And I was angry at God, and I was angry at the cancer, and I was just angry. You know, my dad deserved a peaceful death. My dad deserved to know God, too. Why didn't you come to him? Um, and again, inventory lets me see something I haven't seen before. And, um, and good friends in the program. And I understood that, um, you know, God did come to my dad. Those last three days of my father's life, he wasn't there for himself. He was there for us. He made that choice. I looked at a whole lot around those deaths, and, and I got stuck in some self-pity for a while. And I saw that. Thank you. And I grew to believe, to understand that these experiences, while I don't enjoy them, were opportunities for me to learn and to take that into my future. Seven weeks after that, um, one week after we buried my dad, Richard approached me. He'd done a lot of work over these those 18 months, and he wanted to make amends. And we went to the park, and he shared some truly beautiful God-guided amends. And... Um, And he wanted um, he wanted his wife back, and I was still uncertain. You know, I'd, when was the right time? And and my friend Don P had done a workshop, a traditions workshop, and I'd listened to the tapes. And Don had talked about group conscience, and Don talked about how a true group conscience doesn't require a vote. But if we're having a true group conscience, we will talk and we will share information, and eventually that ultimate authority will speak and will be in accord. And that came to mind, and I shared that with Richard. I said, we can call for a vote, or if you'd like, we could just wait for good conscience from God. And he agreed to that. And uh, he'd had some ill health, and he'd been going to doctors, and we were still seeing each other and and, and dating occasionally and, and in constant contact. And they had diagnosed acid reflux, but he was still sick. And so finally he gave up the GI doctors and went to see a neurologist who did an MRI. They saw a shadow. He went for a CAT scan. And uh, on August 31st, six weeks after that amount, seven weeks after my inventory, um, they asked Richard to come check into the hospital because his CAT scan showed some abnormalities. And so we went to the hospital, 
And they admitted him, and we got on the elevator, and they pushed the sixth floor. And at our hospital, the sixth floor is the oncology unit. We've been there often. And when they pushed the, the sixth floor button, Richard and I grabbed each other's hands. And um, we learned that he had pancreatic cancer that had metastasized to his liver and that he was dying. We got a group conscience. He um he stayed in the hospital for the weekend to receive some blood. His hemoglobin was low. And when we left, we went home. And we learned to love each other like we never had before. And we had an intimacy that had nothing to do with sex. And we prayed daily together. And he allowed me to be of service to him one day at a time. And the Monday, Richard died on a Friday. And the Monday before he died, we were sitting at the kitchen table, pancreatic cancer raised the body, and he um, was wasting. And we talked about that. He showed me a relationship he had with God that I had never seen before. He shared with me as he lost everything he thought was himself, including his physical body, that he was still connected with a God. A loving God. And the Monday before he died, we were sitting at the kitchen table. And he thanked me. He thanked me especially for the prior two years. He said that it was during those two years that he and I had grown more in the likeness and image of our God. I don't know what he meant. But I understand God's grace when I see it. Richard died November 10th in the hospice. We went to the hospital the next day. Tuesday morning, he told me we needed to go to the hospital because he couldn't breathe. Wednesday night, in the hospital, I'm massaging his feet. And he looks up at me and he tells me he loves me. And I understand. And a few hours later, um... He developed a bed sore and he has to get up and down. He needs help doing that. And he told me that they were trying to take his life. I don't know who they were. Um, 
but um, about an hour later, he got a shot from nausea, and um, he was very uncomfortable. And I reminded him that he can relax and take it easy, that we don't have to struggle anymore. And it's part of our love and step instruction. And this precious child of God's relaxed and never gained consciousness again. And on Friday, November 10th, with his mother, all the men were gone. It was just new women. His daughter, me, his sisters, and his mother. He drew his last breath. not what I would have planned. I've spent my whole life believing that life was about getting from point A to X. I understand today what you've taught me is that it's not about getting from point A to X. My life is right here, right now. I always thought that the life God wanted me to have was right around the corner. You know, and if I did the right things, if I worked hard enough, if I manipulated well enough, sober, if I got spiritual enough, you know, if I did the steps right, that I would get the life that God wanted me to have. It's right here and it's right now. And all I have to do is be willing to be open to it and to embrace it. What I want to be able to convey to you is that I am an alcoholic just like you who is powerless over the choice of drink. And you showed me how to gain access to a power greater than myself. And that power not only relieved me from the obsession to take the first drink, You saved my life, and then you continue to give me a new one.